Hello, hello, and welcome to the first ever two-part episode of Non-Technical, where I, your host, Alexis Gay, interview influential folks from tech, media, business, and beyond about everything except their resumes. Right now, you're listening to part one of this two-part episode. Part two will hit your feed June 30th, 2021. Or if you're listening to this after June 30th, 2021, part two is ready and waiting for you. Today on the pod, big pod, long-awaited pod, honestly, we have Chris Saka, the founder of Lower Carbon Capital, though he's done a lot, like a lot of super impressive, really interesting things prior to that, which admittedly, I'm not going to ask him that much about. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, this is fun. We've had this on the book for a long time, so I'm stoked to finally make it happen. And I appreciate you abridging my resume to just that amount of time. This is a really refreshing interview. (laughs) Well, I am so excited to have you here. And as much as I would love to dive into all the nooks and crannies of your illustrious career, I have far more important questions to dig into. (laughs) Absolutely. That is quite literally why I'm here. This is like way cheaper than therapy. So (laughs) fire away. We'll see what it digs up. (laughs) This episode of Non-Technical is brought to you by privacy.com. Privacy.com lets you buy things online using virtual cards instead of using your real ones. So you can protect your identity and bank information on the internet. Okay, here's the deal. I get a lot of ads on Instagram for products I simply do not need, but absolutely must have. Do I buy these products? Let's say uh, hypothetically, yes. And historically, am I always sure that my sensitive financial information is going to a real company I can trust? Uh, Hypothetically, no, I'm not. But that was then and this is now because I signed up for privacy.com and received a virtual card number I can use to safely and securely buy face masks and little kitcheny things and kooky sunglasses to my heart's content. Hypothetically, of course. Right now, new privacy.com customers will automatically get $5 to spend on their first purchase. That's like a full face mask. You can go to privacy.com slash non-technical to sign up now. Chris Saka is the co-founder of Lower Carbon Capital and an accomplished venture investor, company advisor, and entrepreneur managing a portfolio of countless technology, communication, and consumer product startups through his firm, Lowercase Capital. Alongside his wife, Crystal, Chris grew lowercase, primarily known for its investments in very early stage tech companies like Twitter, Uber, Instagram, Twilio, Docker, Optimizely, Blue Bottle Coffee, and Stripe, and one of history's most successful funds ever. You may also know him from the cast of Shark Tank, which he joined in 2015 for two Emmy award-winning seasons. And as a longtime supporter of both President Biden and Vice President Harris, Chris served on their 2020 campaign's National Finance Committee and is a member of Climate Leaders for Biden. These days, Chris heads a science and investing team at Lower Carbon Capital, pursuing the world's most ambitious solutions to the climate crisis that is threatening all life on the planet. Chris, you're busy. Tell me about it, right? I mean, in 2017, (laughs) I announced I was retiring. And then after a couple of years, Crystal and I realized we were doing literally 60 hours a week still. And I was like, okay, this is the opposite of retirement. Let's just admit we work. This is actually a very full circle moment for me in that the first time I ever heard your voice was on a podcast on that episode of Startup in 2014. Oh, man, I love hearing that. It's actually strange because... For as much as I've been in front of big audiences with Shark Tank, hmm. that podcast really struck a note. And hmm. I've talked with Ira Glass, who you know yeah. is like a hero of mine, this American Life guy. And I asked him what he thought it was, why podcasts feel so intimate and hmm. leave uh, such an impression on listeners. And 
one of the things we came to, and there was a lot of wine involved, but one of the things we came to <laughs> is this idea that it's kind of in your head. When you watch TV, mm-hmm. it's arm's length. But when you are listening to a podcast, particularly with headphones on, that literally is occupying your brain. And 100%. It feels like a much more intimate and real conversation. I was on a TV show where I played myself. I wasn't a character. Right. But in that startup episode, I was absolutely myself. I mean, I was mm-hmm. so myself that I kind of abandoned the role of VC and was like, I feel so bad for Alex Bloomberg. Let me help him <laughs> with this pitch. And then I did my eight mile thing. Yeah. We'd, we'd been eating sushi and drinking beer in the afternoon to try and loosen him up. We'd been there so long and he'd been fumbling this pitch so long that they eventually kicked us out of the restaurant because the sushi (gasps) chefs were like, look, we have to go take a nap before dinner. And so we were walking up and down West Pico. That's why the sound is so wild. Yeah. And I had to get going and I'm just like, okay, enough. Let me just give you your pitch. And, And I did my thing and he's like, oh yeah, yeah, that's it. And then I just did the counter pitch and dismantled it. And then got into an Uber and left him devastated on the corner. So, but ultimately we (laughs) did invest in Gimlet, what went on to be called Gimlet. And it's been a wild success. And Alex Bloomberg, it's funny. He's really blossomed into a business person. Anyway, it was fun to meet him in real life. And I'm glad that episode resonated with you. Oh, yeah. I mean, Gimlet and startup, huge reason I ever got into podcasts. And then seven years later, probably one of the biggest reasons that I have one myself. That's fantastic. It seemed like a crazy idea at the time, right? Totally. And now, seven years later, after that pitch, here we are. And now it's a job. Yeah. Yes. Well, yes. (laughs) Good for you. Yes, indeed. The other thing that I wanted to mention is that you were a producer on the new one, Mike Birbiglia's show. Oh, yeah. Yeah. On Broadway. That was wild. Yeah. Birbiglia is an old friend. We went to college together. Oh, you overlapped at Georgetown. Yeah. I admire his humor because one of the constraints he puts on himself is he doesn't swear. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm at the other end of the spectrum. Like my children swear (laughs) because I work from home and I just can't help myself. Yeah. But for Biggs put this this creative constraint on himself and has just excelled. I mean, his storytelling Mm -hmm. at heart is self-deprecating and vulnerable. And that's who he is in real life. And I love that. I, I think sometimes in the worlds of business and entertainment, the temptation is to build up layers and polish yourself in a way that you lose touch with authenticity. I feel really attracted to people who I think own exactly who they are, own their genuineness a hundred percent. And actually like that becomes their career is being yes. an unfiltered, unbridled, unapologetic person. And that's Uber Biggs is. And so when we got an opportunity to work on his show and then Crystal, my wife actually designed his book cover and stuff like that. We've really we've collaborated on a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. So, Love him. He's one of my all-time favorite comedians. I'm hugely inspired by his storytelling. And that point about authenticity really resonates with me because I think that so many incredible opportunities and things in my life have come from the moment when I was like, oh, I like creative stuff and I like business stuff. I'm going to do both. Let's see what happens. Well, first of all, let me tell you the Burbigs thing about like sleeping in the bag with the mitts on. That's real. Like he has slept over our house multiple times and that is he gets zipped in. That is a real thing. But what I'll also say is that to your authenticity point, there's this thing that happens in your life where as you grow up, like your parents are looking out for you. And then maybe you have some favorite teachers who have your best interest in mind. Mm -hmm. And then um, maybe if you play sports, you have some coaches or you have, you know, if you're into theater, you have some directors and stuff like that. And then ultimately you get out in the career world and you're like, oh shit, that person's not really there anymore. And some people kind of might pretend to be that, but they're Mm -hmm. really not. 
they kind of have their own self-interest and they don't know what's really on your scorecard anymore. Hmm. And so you've spent a lot of your life trying to, to honor these people, to you know follow a lot of their suggestions, as well as to kind of protect them. And a lot of your hmm. best stories might actually involve them. And so I sometimes think one of the great superpowers is when you can just back away and say, all right, look, I'm, I'm literally the only person who knows what's on my scorecard and what matters to me. And I'm just going to tell my stories uh, regardless of, you know, like who the bit players might be. I mean, I just listened to Seth Rogen's audiobook, which I highly recommend. Ooh. And I mean, it is side splitting funny. And a lot of it is just him. I mean, he tells a story about early on in his relationship with his now wife, like he pooped his pants oh one morning God. and just couldn't admit it to her, had to walk her to her <gasps> car with poop in his pants. And I'm like, fuck yes, that is a great story. <laughs> like, like that is a guy who just owns exactly who he is. There we go. And I've been lucky enough yeah. to hang out with Seth in real life and he is not playing a character in the movies. That guy is playing himself. I love that. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, speaking of being known as being yourself, have you ever been known as the something person, like the math guy in high school or anything at work or in college? I mean, I always had a hustle. Since I was mm. five years old, I would pick up these walnuts. First, okay. I started with rocks from a parking lot. There were rocks that had yellow paint on them and it was crumbling. And okay. so I put those in my wagon. And then it started with walnuts that as they fall from the tree, if you poke them with a fork, they're very pungent. And so I would put my huh. brother, who's three and a half years younger than me, so like two years old, in a wagon with a sandwich board that said air fresheners for sale or <gasps> rocks for sale. And I would go door to door and sell them for a quarter. And I'd make money, but also the neighbors would like call my parents like, do you realize your kid is, you know, and they're like, yeah, that's just who he is. So I, I always had some kind of entrepreneurial mm. activity or some kind of business. When I got to college, I was broke compared to all the other kids. Sure. It was a fancy school and everybody had money. Yeah. And so a buddy and I went, bought a used vacuum cleaner and a bunch of paper towels. I think we stole the paper towels actually from okay. um, the custodial <laughs> service and some Windex. And we were called Dustbusters, not a particularly original name, but for like 10 bucks, we would clean rooms. And it was amazing. It That's was always awesome. the girls who wanted their like sinks wiped down and the, you know, mm -hmm. and Windex of course. and stuff. Boys had yes. no interest in it at all. Like their little rug. And so we would do that until we had enough money to go out. And so I've I've always had a hustle. And so yeah. I don't know exactly which label that took. Way back early in life, I was I my nickname in high school was Booker because I read so many books. Really? Yeah. And that was hmm. given to me by my best friend's mom who was a cocktail waitress and she was wasted mm -hmm. and we we're all playing cards and she was smoking yeah. parliament filters and she originally called me books and then booker and so that's stuff yep okay that's a nice way to get that nickname that's an endearing way that's not like you got shoved into a locker and they're like come here booker you know <laughs> yeah, no i i mean i was definitely a geek but i mm. i played some sports but i knew how to align myself with some of the badasses Okay. And my dad, my dad growing up was a small town attorney. Mm. We never really had any money because he would do most of the stuff pro bono. Sure. And he would never tell me who his clients were. But a couple of times <laughs> where I found myself in hot water at school, some large delinquent would come up and be like, yo, I got your back. Your dad helped me out of a situation once. Wow. And so it was pretty cool. There was downstream effects of my dad being a, a, a badass good guy. That is pretty cool. Plus, you probably felt a little safer lifting those paper towels, knowing that you had some legal support. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've committed a, a... I mean, talk about privilege. I was just thinking about that this morning, like the number of street signs in college. Literally this morning, the number of street signs that yeah. my friends and I stole in college. Really? 
it was just it was a thing we collected them and i'm looking back on like what a disaster that was yeah like when a stop sign goes away somebody could get hurt you took a stop sign we took all the signs and Chris. i feel i feel so i know i i i'm 46 years old and literally this morning i was like fuck that was horrible yeah i was grappling with that uh, like two hours ago Wow. Did you ever take like Chris Street or something like that? Let me see. Probably. I think I definitely have the street signs from streets I lived on in my life. Okay. But That's it, cool. it was like a thing. Like I, it wasn't even like my idea. I just kind of got swept up. We didn't have fraternities in college. So we had other ways that you had to okay. show you were part of a tribe. Everyone yeah. wore the same flannel shirts and white baseball cap. I wasn't a white baseball cap <laughs> guy, but... But I think there are other ways you had to show you belonged. Yeah. And collecting street signs is one of them. I apologize. I literally was thinking this morning, what is the way I can make it up to the residents of Northwestern mm. Washington, D.C.? So hmm. this, see, this is why this podcast exists. I can just throw stuff like this out there. If anyone has any ideas, you can send them to me. I'll, <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs> well, then. OK, so let me ask you this. Is there a fad that you look back on participating in that could be fashion, workout, cultural, whatever, that looking back now makes you a little cringy? I mean, I used to try and start fads. That was like a challenge for me. Oh, OK. I was a start fad kind of guy. Okay. <laughs> I had this uncle who was traveling through town. He was he was one of my mom's brothers. He was kind of itinerant at the time. And okay. he wore a handkerchief out of his back pocket, but just OK dangling like impossibly you're like what are the laws of physics that maintain there's more handkerchief outside of the pocket than inside like how does that actually work i got really into that and so i was bringing bandanas oh. to school and wearing them just out of my pocket until i got the uh -huh. whole class to do it and the principal had to intervene <gasps> and i just i felt like a massive success when i got that to catch on yeah you were influential other trends i mean i participated in one bros icing bros one time Bros icing bros, which yes. is, do you mean icing someone like handing them a Smirnoff ice? Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, yeah. he can't possibly mean that. Right? No, I, I do. <laughs> One time it was at our house in Truckee and it actually involved Travis Kalanick. <laughs> Somewhere I have either a picture or video of Travis taking a knee and chugging a Smirnoff ice. Yep. Later when people were talking about tech bros, I was like, no, mm. no, no. Oh, fuck. Yes. Yep. Oh my God. <laughs> Oh, you guys are so right. Shit. <laughs> Whoops. But at the time, yeah, I remember it was Ryan Sarver who came up to the house and was like mm. really into it. And so he got us to ice bros. I think he even brought it. It wasn't something I had in inventory. You okay. know? <laughs> it wasn't something I had in the fridge. You do need some planning. There's some forethought goes into icing someone, right? It's not just something you typically have on hand. I mean, it depends on who you are. Like, I'll admit, I've got claws in the fridge right now. Like I have claws. Sure. 20 feet from me in my barn. You know what? I think that the stigma around White Claws, I think that's in the past. I think we all, we're all we all openly admitting White Claws great. I'll say it. I'm going on the record right now. We own this super interesting high-end distillery in Copenhagen called Empirical Spirits. And they are pushing the boundaries of science to make spirits that don't fit any category. In fact, by the way, their best-selling spirit of all time was called Fuck Trump in a Stupid Fucking Wall. Oh, I love that. Made with peppers from Mexico and stuff. It's incredible. But Love that. so they make these cans that are the absolute pinnacle of flavor and like complexity that delivers simplicity on the palate. Just incredible stuff. Wow. And they get deeply offended that I have it in the same fridge as White Claw. Like it's just <laughs> a, a personal affront to them. But that's you have levels, you have layers, Chris, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I've been lucky. Like in my life, I've been able to hang in some really erudite and sophisticated settings. But mm -hmm. I am a kid from 
north of Buffalo who went sure. to public school and ground it out. And so there are aspects of me that are still very quotidian. And you're not supposed to use the word quotidian when you describe aspects of you that are like... I was just going to say, mm. <laughs> you really had me sold until the word quotidian came out. Now, it's a little questionable. I listen to more country music than anyone would ever. Like, I did not publish mm. my Spotify year in review on purpose. <laughs> it just seems totally inconsistent with who I am. Got it. Well, you weren't ready for the onslaught of anti-country music haters. No, I mean, first, I think country music holds the key to communicating across this political divide. Ooh. And I actually think, by the way, Sam Altman, who runs OpenAI and, you know, mm -hmm. helped lead the GPT-3 development. So this AI yeah. that just like you put in some text and it gives you the rest of the text gave me early access because I wanted to use it to write country music songs. I am convinced really? that country music songs are the first genre that can be written by AI. No offense to anyone writing country music songs. So have you written? I have. And my secret project is to get them produced by actual artists without my name attached oh my God. and without anyone revealing that's an experiment. So all I'll say is that. that's in process. They're absolutely amazing. If you look at the keywords and what resonates, you're like, holy mm -hmm. shit. I've actually applied this like in working with President Biden on climate stuff. With Biden, the old school Scranton, Pennsylvania jobs guy, we've got a chance to push some yep. of this over if we retell the story. And I was like, Mr. President, Take those old Super Bowl truck commercials, like the, like a rock, those commercials. And I was like, <laughs> like literally show waving flags, like, because yeah. this is what happens. People erecting windmills and solar panels mm -hmm. and putting, yeah. you know, carbon sequestration is just putting oil back in the ground. But it's mm -hmm. the same guys with the same tools, with the same trucks, with the same Kenny Chesney blaring on the radio, with the same yep. gun rack, with the same beer. Mm -hmm. I'm like, just show those ads with like mud flying and your loyal trusty dog and sparks yep. that have no relevance to anything, but they're just sparks Absolutely flying. Absolutely not. And I'm like, mm -hmm. that's literally what climate jobs are. And so for me, I both enjoy country music, but I also feel like I learn communication from it. Absolutely. So when I tell a story and I use the word quotidian, I have absolutely alienated a bunch of people in an audience, right? <laughs> so one of the things I did to overcome that in speech, I started mm. studying like sayings of the American cowboy. And hmm. ultimately I took this, I built this into a class I used to teach at Oxford. It was business negotiation, the American cowboy. So I would teach these very proper British kids how to use cowboy sayings to like cool. win a negotiation. And it's devastating. Like there are these kind of, phrases that get handed down from, you know, generation to generation. And they yeah. kind of, they're not full of nuance, but they're just conversation enders. And like when somebody utters them in a business setting, they win, you know? And when somebody utters them in yeah. a political debate, you're like, fuck, that guy sounds wise as shit. I guess he's got it. Can you give me some insight into what a cowboy phrase is or an example? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of there's one. A, there's a million, like, <laughs> like, you know, if a project is moving along, not the pace you want, you'd yep. be like, look, man, and you got to slow down when you say these things. Okay. You can't say them fast. Look, everybody knows the only way to move cattle fast is slow. <laughs> and then you pause and you're like, okay. and if you want, you can throw like, look, man, as my granny used to say, throw one of those on the front end oh just God. to kind of establish That's the, beautiful. you know? Yeah, set the tone. Yeah, you just, you put some of those out there. Like on Shark Tank, for instance, those are just winners, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Stuff like that's about as useful as a screen door on a submarine. And you're just like, <laughs> boom, Saka wins the episode. Gorgeous. You know, or like <laughs> if Mark Cuban had a fresh idea, it would die of loneliness. And you're just like, that's oh game God. over. Like, sorry, Mark. Wow, that's amazing. 
Hmm. You mentioned you grew up outside of Buffalo, New York. Is that yeah. right? Is there anything that your family did growing up that at the time you thought was normal and then later you realized was a little strange? It didn't seem abnormal to me at the time, but my parents kind of were part of a bulk food co-op that oh, okay. once every few weeks, like dozens of people would descend upon our house to sort out massive barrels of dates and nuts huh. and, you know, and beans. And that just seemed like a normal thing that happened at everybody else's house. And as I grew up, I was like, wait, sure. what the fuck? Like, these were strangers and shit. And they're like, well, it was our turn. And so, yeah, everyone would roll through our house and and do this. Wow. I, I'm trying to think if we did anything else that was unusual. I mean, my, my mom was a college professor and hmm. she was very early to the sugar as poison thing. My brother and I grew up without any sweets around the house or any soda ever or anything like that. Yeah. So I do remember maybe I was like eight or nine. I was at a friend's birthday party and they served some soda. And I went over to the, to the mom and I was like, Hey, psst, like, Mrs. Johnson, come here. She's like, what? And I'm like, your juice is rotten. You probably don't want to let the other oh kids drink this. Like it's gone off. It's, oh it's my rotten. God. I didn't really know about that shit. On the list of privileges was that I grew up in a really nice hometown where you could just mm -hmm. ride your bike to a buddy's house and knock on the door and say, can you play? And we had miles and miles of free range travel. And, you know, I had to be mm -hmm. back by dark. My parents like stuck together and I just feel really lucky. I, I, that was yeah. kind of everyone's, it was a pretty standard life. Everyone worked at the auto plant where we grew up and no one was rich, but everyone made enough to maybe have a boat or, you know, money to go to Florida for vacation. It was very yeah. halcyon. And now that's a community ravaged by meth. Uh, the auto plant moved to Mexico. Mm -hmm. Everyone's pensions mm -hmm. got bankrupted. It's, it's a disaster. And so yeah. I actually feel I'm lucky in a way to have seen the canary in the coal mine of what, what kind of brought in the Trump era because it happened in my hometown. I just saw people who lost control of their own destiny wouldn't be able to provide for their kids the way that their parents had provided for them. The era I grew up in was really special. It was just like wonderfully peaceful. And I'm not gonna say it was like free of racism and sexism and other systemic problems, but it was a real mm -hmm. privilege to grow up in a chill. I mean, where we grew up is more Midwestern than New York, you know, and um, it was like Rust mm -hmm. Belt. And so, Childhood yeah. for me was pretty chill and normal. I feel really lucky for that. Oh, yeah. It sounds idyllic. It sounds like it had the makings of a great country song, One Girl's Opinion. The one thing my mom did do <laughs> was she, despite being a college professor, was not a big fan of how some public education worked. And so she would routinely hmm. pull me and my brother out of school to like go see an author or to go visit oh, an art exhibit. Okay. Like if she had a break yeah. in her teaching schedule or she would just bring us to her class where she would sure. teach and we would sit in the room and blow the curve. That was definitely not normal, but I'm incredibly thankful for it. And then the other thing actually, okay, there is one other thing. My mom and dad were really insistent upon us not getting stuck in our hometown. Oh, really? Oh, from an early yeah. age? Yeah, like my dad felt like he didn't have a lot of opportunity. He was kind of expected to come back and get into business with his father as a lawyer. Okay. And my mom, you know, when she fell in love with my dad, they married early and like there wasn't any opportunity. She would get offered professorships other places. And when my dad, as a small town lawyer, like it's not a practice, you can kind of move. I think sometimes they felt stuck. And so they mm -hmm. raised us to kind of want to go other places. And they also raised us to want to have a real work ethic. You know, I think they both grew mm -hmm. up working their asses off their whole lives. And so, yeah. so my brother and I had what were called sweet and sour. It started as summers and then it was all year round. So 
okay. would both have an incredible internship somewhere. They would just call a family friend and be like, hey, can you just let our kids shadow you for a week or two weeks unpaid? We would just hmm. stay at their house. Or So I was like, at age 12, I like was a lobbyist. You know, I had one tie oh and my I would God. just kind of follow my godbrother around DC and, you know, quote unquote, pitch congressmen who were happy to hear me wow, and, sure. uh, and just laughed about it. Like this little kid trying to pass a foreign aid bill or something like that. Yeah. But then we would come home and we worked for my dad's best friend who ran a construction company at a party rental and equipment company and sewage and septic mm. maintenance and repair. And he would just kick our asses. Half the guys yeah. we worked with were on work release from prison and were like just badass mm -hmm. dudes. Oh my gosh. And like, mm -hmm. it was a no fucking around work environment. And that boss knew it. He's like, I'm putting you on the why I'm never going to fuck up in college plan. He's like, you never wow. want to come back to this job. And so yes. that didn't feel particularly special at the time. In fact, it felt like a grind. Right. But looking yeah. back on it, I'm like, oh my God. Like, thank God for that experience. Not only did I have these this exposure to these experiences outside of my hometown that a kid in a small town of 20,000 people outside of Buffalo never even gets to see like these jobs I didn't even know existed. Yeah. But in the meantime, I also grew up where a hard day of work there, like when I used to hear people at Google complain about hard day work, I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. Like you have no <laughs> idea. Like our hardest day right. is when I thought about like what kind of helped create drive in me, what kind of created resilience and the ability to push through bad times. Yeah. It was those jobs. And I also think it it's part of yes. why, you know, politically I'm very progressive for a rich guy. Like I, mm -hmm. it wasn't that mm -hmm. long ago that I had those jobs and wondered how the fuck do people put a life together? How do, how do they afford a house and a totally. car and kids and insurance and all that shit? Mm -hmm. It just wasn't mm -hmm. that long ago for me. I would just see these people working their ass off and be like, how the fuck do sure. they put it together for $6 an hour? Yeah, it's perspective. I'm insanely grateful for that. Plus I know how to use tools. I know how to operate a backhoe or a front mm. loader. It sounds like you're handy. Are you handy? When I want to. I'm really lucky now that I have people to be handy when I don't have the time. So <laughs> yeah. I, did, I did brag to Crystal this week that I reassembled a door that was coming apart. And I was like, look at that. And wow. then I went to use the door a minute later and the screws were back out of the wall. They were stripped. No. And I, was like, Fuck. <laughs> I was like, that's what I get for bragging about it. Well, Chris, what's the tiniest hill that you're willing to die on. So something totally inconsequential that you would really, really go to bat for. Holy fuck. <laughs> These are fantastic. Um, the tiniest, I mean, let me, okay. Let me just start with some hills. Like, okay. I think snowboards are fundamentally incompatible with skis. Fundamentally I, incompatible. Yeah. Like they create a different wear pattern on a ski mountain. They change the shape oh, of moguls. Okay. And so I grew up opposed to snowboards and I remain opposed yep. to snowboards. And I find okay. it very hard. I think among my friends, I maybe have single digit people that I still respect as people who are also okay. snowboarders. Yeah, so that's that's a real challenge for me. That sounds like a that's a hardship for you. Yeah, dude, I you know, until the pandemic started, I would have really gone in hard on Chef Boyardee cheese ravioli. Um, <laughs> like I once one of my biggest crimes, I would say, yeah. was during a food drive in high school. Yeah. I actually took out, <gasps> I took out a, a Chef Boyardee cheese ravioli and I replaced it with a beef aroni, which is clearly oh an inferior God. product. Chris, first the stop sign. I know. Now this. Some people consider it a substitute. It's clearly an inferior product. But so anyway, when the pandemic was happening, yep. I was like, all right, who knows if this will dis disrupt supply chains. I'm loading up on canned food. And I got all this Chef Boyardee and I kind of got excited to share it with the kids. Yeah. And we all had a bite and we were like, 
oh shit, this is not okay. Right. Yeah. I had to confront like all these things from my childhood. Like were those hungry man dinners not as amazing as I remember Mm -hmm. them? Yeah. Like, and all the effort we had to put into like baking it so that like the other stuff didn't get burned, but the brownie did get semi cooked through. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like a lava cake, you know? Yeah. I do. I do believe that that was the inspiration for the molten lava cake was the undercooked (laughs) hungry man dinner brownie. (laughs) All these chefs want to take credit. Bullshit. They grew up with TV dinners. Yeah. I just want to briefly unpack your, your love of Chef Boyardee. So you're saying that going into the pandemic, you were thinking like, this is going to be great. I'm excited to try it. And then once you had it again, you realized that you've been kind of looking at it through rose colored glasses all these years. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love going back to the 80s and figuring out what holds up and what doesn't. Okay. So I've never seen like a Marvel movie. I just have no interest. But I have rewatched dozens of shitty movies, like maybe more than 100 shitty movies from the 80s now. And trying to figure out what holds up, what doesn't, what are my favorites. Like that's... I mean, just a week ago, I went into a deep YouTube hole where I was rewatching You Can't Do That on Television. Okay. Which, by the way, is the most dark, subversive shit of all time. I've never seen it. Okay. It was the Canadian show that Alanis Morissette got started on. Oh, okay. We kind of knew it was subversive. And I think it was great because it didn't talk down to kids. When I look back on it, I mean, there were just kids were tortured, uh, assassinated at the stake. I mean, these things mm-hmm. out of context sound barbaric. Like, yeah, yeah. There were teachers with fully automatic weapons in the classroom. Holy shit. Many people in your audience have seen this. Okay. And I think they might not have gone through the reckoning I just went through recently. And so this may be a shocking point in the podcast for some people. Okay. If you go back and look at those episodes, they were fucking intense. And then I also went back and watched like Double Dares. That does hold okay. up. <laughs> <laughs> the questions are hard because it'll be like, what was the highest grossing movie in 1984? And you're like, oh, and you're like, oh God. I am a hyper nostalgic person for that kind okay. of stuff. There was an old baseball card with this guy named Billy Ripkin. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really into baseball, but I was into cards, hustle, you know? Okay. Yeah. And in this baseball card where he's holding up his bat on the bottom, on the bottom of the handle of his bat, it says fuck face. Okay. And as like a 12 year old that was by far and away the most coveted baseball card of all time. Yeah, Jose oh, Canseco and Mark McGuire were amazing players, but no, a card that says, says fuck face, face that on. got printed and distributed. Yeah. And so I chased that card for years as a kid and never got it. And my friend oh, no. Nate Bosshard this year sent me that card. <gasps> like he knew about this and he sent me that card and I, I was like me. choked up. I now have the Billy Rapkin fuckface card. I'm a super sucker for nostalgia. A hobby of mine is collecting obscure movie t-shirts. Oh, really? So t-shirts that are things that were worn in 80s movies, but never say the name of the movie or you wouldn't know. Okay, yeah. Like Spies Like Us, I have the Ace Tomato shirt. So that's the name of the CIA's cover in Spies Like Us. You just got it. Okay. One in a thousand people like, oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. That's a hobby of mine. But those are good times. Like those are good years. And uh, and I miss them a little bit. I haven't purchased a t-shirt since I entered the tech industry. I don't think I'll ever need to buy another t-shirt ever again. As long as I live, honestly. Let me tell you a quick story. When I was a lawyer, very briefly, I made it 13 months as a lawyer before they laid me <sighs> off. So like, look, when you work at one of these companies, you get this swag and it just kind of comes and goes. You're like, I'm inundated with swag. You know, yep. you join Google and they're like, come to the swag store and they just yep. keep all this shit on you. Mm-hmm. And at first it's pretty cool. And then eventually you realize that's your entire wardrobe and you you start re-gifting it for Christmas presents and stuff yep. like that. But when you're a lawyer, it is just the most soulless, unrewarding office space sometimes, you know? Okay. 
it's just really challenging because yeah. the only way that you're evaluated is on how much time did you spend doing lawyering? Oof. Like it's all, mm-hmm. oh God, like it's just not like, hey, how great a job did you do? Or did you innovate? Did you come up with a new idea today? It's just like, how long did you drag that wow. shit out? What percent of your life did you dedicate to this toil? Totally. And so that's a struggle, right? But the one way you could kind of distinguish yourself among peers was by wearing swag from a client company. Oh. That meant like that company appreciated your work so much they actually gave you a little piece of swag. Okay. (laughs) I was like, you know, like eighth person down. So my clients didn't know who I was. Yeah. And nor did they give a shit. So what I figured out though was that if you went to the Goodwill or Salvation Army, mm-hmm. they would have all of this extra swag. Oh, like, sure. They would just have racks and racks of denim shirts with company logos on them. Yeah. I would pay two bucks for a shirt that said like Cisco. You yeah. Know? And then roll into the office, not wearing office wear, but wearing the Cisco shirt. Oh, my God. And everyone's like, fuck, dude, he must be getting some shit done. Wow. Like, and so <laughs> I would just pick out companies that weren't even necessarily clients. They just looked badass. Like, yeah. How the fuck do you know Segway? I'm like, hey, you damn, know, mm, that's a power move. What kind of swag do you have right now? Oh, my God. So I joined the tech industry in 2013, which means I have just a staggering number of American Apparel, unisex, tri-blend t-shirts. Did anyone replace American Apparel yet? Is there like a Mm -mm. good soft t-shirt yet? Mm -mm. Not yet. As horrible as that culture was at that company, it's a real devastating loss to all of us who who love soft fabric. It's true. That tri-blend, I mean, no joke, like every single company party I went to, all my friends' companies, I have so many of those shirts and they're so soft. It was funny, like, so lowercase and lower carbon, we don't really do like, normally venture funds have big annual meetings of all their limited partners and they mm-hmm. put on a dog and pony show and we yeah. just don't do it. But we do take pride in our swag. Oh, really? It took a few years um, before we finally got our swag game together, but okay. I'll put my swag up against anybody else's swag, so. Wow, Yeah. okay. Our swag game is tight and it's not just traditional stuff. We go the extra mile for a typical swag. Wow, this is really making oh, me- Oh, it's a flex. It's a, it's a total flex. I yeah. feel flexed on, honestly, because I made 15 hats for the podcast. <laughs> How do you get those done? Did you get a better price at 15? Like, what was that number? I wanted to experiment with two different colors. I spent about two minutes on the design and I just wanted enough to give to the friends that had helped me practice honestly, and get it off the ground. I don't sell them or anything like that. There's just 15 of them out there in the universe. Are they getting worn? Yeah, it's really the best. My friends send me uh, photos. And then also it just says it makes it look like non-technical NTCL as a stock ticker symbol. So people will be like, oh, what company is that? And they're like, it's my friend's podcast. (laughs) Right on. Yeah, my I love seeing um, our shit out in the wild. My favorite thing is when other VCs wear our swag. I'm like, I want it. It's (laughs) better. But I've yet to see it on on anyone like secondhand mm-hmm, like that. Mm-hmm. That becomes a moment when you start seeing your swag has been given away to somebody else who yep. has no relationship whatsoever. I haven't hit that kind of midlife swag crisis yet. But is that a crisis? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because that does mean that it's gone even farther than you originally imagined, right? So on the one hand, you celebrate the utility of it. Yes. And on the other hand, you're like, oh man, if this is ever the fate of my swag, that's going to require some reckoning. That can be part of the fire that keeps you motivated to keep your swag game strong. Like I appreciate it's, that. Yeah, yeah. Just to give you some advice on hustling and, and motivation and innovation. I think that that I think that that's good advice. I appreciate that. Once again, the therapy session. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm here for you later. I would love to know how that makes you feel. 
This episode of Non-Technical is still brought to you by Privacy.com. Privacy.com lets you take back control of your payments by deciding who can charge your card, how much, and how often. And yes, that applies to free trials and subscriptions. Let me tell you a quick story. Once upon a time, a famously adored comedian and podcast host wanted to watch the Meghan Markle Prince Harry Oprah interview, but access to cable was nowhere to be found. She turned down the dark and dangerous path of a free trial to a streaming service. Free trial, she said. Surely I'll remember to cancel this before I get charged. Listener, she did not. Now, if our heroine had used privacy.com, she wouldn't have paid for a single month of Paramount Plus she didn't need, or three months she didn't need, whatever. It's not important. What's important is that with privacy.com, you can set time limits and spending limits on your virtual card to make sure you're never accidentally billed. Right now, new customers will automatically get $5 to spend on their first purchase. You can go to privacy.com slash non-technical to sign up now. Chris, what is something non-work related? This actually does sound like a therapy question. What's something non-work related that you're really proud of? My kids. And I don't, I don't want that to sound like a cliche answer, but no, no, it's not at all. I realize that my kids and Crystal and I think about this all the time. Like one of our jobs is because our kids are growing up with mm -hmm. just a lot of privilege. Mm -hmm. they're at much higher risk than most kids for being assholes. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. I'll just say it. Most of my friends' kids suck. Yeah. They're just <laughs> shitty kids. Mm -hmm. And and I think not by design, just by like, yeah. just that's the implication. If you get everything you want mm -hmm. and you've never had to work and everyone around you is working for you or helping you, you can just grow up to be a total asshole. Oh, yeah. Easily. I am very proud that our kids are great. And I say that in that one, they're just conscientious, helpful, look you in the eye type kids, right? And part that's of that is huge. They, they have jobs in our house. In 2021? Yeah. Yes, that's massive. I, mean, I had jobs in our house because my mom and dad worked at night and, you know, like yeah. we're trying to put a life together and we didn't have anyone helping. So we had jobs. Of but course. Our kids have jobs around the house. I think that's really important. Our kids learn how to carry on a conversation, how to ask questions, how to be mm -hmm. helpful. They're very involved in our charity work. And we try oh, and do really? stuff. Some of the stuff we do philanthropically is a little abstract, but okay. so we try and do stuff that's one-to-one -one or one-to-a-few so they get it. So we spend a lot of time on donors choose with our kids to help oh, specific great. classrooms with things they need. And that allows us to bring up issues hmm. like some classrooms are trying to get laptops, but some are trying to get coats and gloves and, right. and some are trying to get dignity closets so that kids can get shampoo and tampons and soap. And so we could talk about that with our kids in the hypothetical or we could you know get on it cc who's now nine i think when she was six or seven designed a vote button that ended up getting sold on the internet and stuff that's awesome yeah i mean when biden was declared the winner i have a video of them standing up on the mantle in front of the tv singing along to fuck donald trump by yz oh so God. that's another thing i'm kind of proud of our kids swear like drunken sailors but okay they do it effectively they don't just toss the words around they yeah. know when to apply mm -hmm. them. I think we have a culture that raises girls not to swear, not to sell, mm -hmm. not to negotiate yep. without financial literacy and yep. a host of other things, right? Can confirm. Yeah. So I think the thing I'm proudest of is that our girls, we've we've worked hard to isolate them from the princess industrial complex. They're just not interested, but they also haven't like, they never did the frozen thing and like the yeah. impossible body image stuff and all that. So instead mm -hmm. we just gave our girls room to be kids. They will right. wear dresses with camo pants underneath. They love doing their hair, but then taking that into the woods and identifying scat. 
And so we live in Wyoming. Yep. We live in like the Serengeti of North America. So all of our girls know yep. to ha- how to handle themselves and they see a bear or a mountain lion or a moose. Mm-hmm. We have moose in the yard every day. For me, seeing them grow up to be by choice geeky. We don't watch a lot of television, but the shows mm-hmm. they want to watch like as a reward for something are like math and science yeah. shows. That's that wasn't awesome. programmed. That was just who they wanted to be. And nobody told them not to. Hmm. That's exactly it. Nobody told them not to to like that or that they shouldn't like that or that that's not for right. them because it's always been out there. But you have all this pressure as a little girl of people and society and movies and everything being like, oh, no, no, <laughs> honey, don't break a nail. That's not right. for you. No, I mean, look, literally, if you go into Target now and it, it was like that when I was a kid, but not as bad. And the, by the way, there's some great mm-hmm. books on this. One is called Cinderella Ate My Daughter is a really good one. There's another one called Redefining Girly. But if you go into Target right now, there's a boy section and then a pink section. And, you know, and if you look at the stickers, even for boys, it's sports and careers and for girls, it's princesses and fairies. So one Mm -hmm. of the things we do is Crystal and I both work from home and like our kids sit in our lap sometime, which is one of the reasons why they drop F-bombs a lot is they're there for negotiations. (laughs) Anyone who followed me in the early days on Twitter used to see my Mm. two and three-year-old do the stock report you know, on oh so they would read off the stocks and tell people where they're going up or down and what they believed in. Every night before we read books, we negotiate how many books to read. And so, yeah, really? I mean, I want to teach our girls how to ask because boys are taught from the earliest age how to sell. We're totally. you know, like, if, if, yep. if I want to ask you to the dance, I have to kind of position myself in the best way and give you reasons for yep. that to happen, yep. right? And so one of the things I actually see, like we back a lot of female founders. One of the things I actually see with female founders is they are not practiced in the art of, bullshit. So mm-hmm. sometimes they end up just lying and you're like, whoa, 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 that was a lie. That wasn't like a, yeah. that wasn't like a well, you know, position like rounding right. some of the corners, leaving out a couple details, like sales. Yeah. Dropping in yeah. some perfect the, cowboy phrases. That was just fraud. There, yeah. there is a line between bullshit and fraud. We really try and raise our girls to, to know that distinction. Long way of saying, I know a lot of people are proud of their kids, but I just look at our kids and I see them on the way to just being good people out in the universe, whatever they choose to do. We hear that from people all the time, like, shit, I really enjoy being around your kids. And I'm like, that is my wish for them, is that they can be helpful, leave the world better than they found it. Yeah, that's what I'm proudest of right now. That's beautiful. I'm sure being told that your kids are great is a very fulfilling compliment. Like, you did that. When you have kids, in the very beginning, I was asking friends before our first baby arrived, okay, so what do you do Mm -hmm. to have a good kid? And, you know, one of my friends was just like, dude, you don't get it. Like, this isn't a startup. You don't get to shape it. You just get assigned a roommate, like off Craigslist. Wow. And so, you know, each of our three kids came Mm. out totally different. They had different cries. They have different responses to sorrow Mm. and frustration now. With each of those kids, you realize you just like help right around the edges with boundaries and gratitude and that kind of stuff. But they are who they are. I just feel really, really lucky it's worked out that way. And by the way, underpinning all that, I think was like, I spent most of my life being a shitty boyfriend and bad in relationships. And I think Hmm. so underpinning all that was finally like working on a real relationship and figuring out how to be a good partner and building like a really solid trusting foundation with somebody. So Crystal and I have actively worked on that for years and regularly Mm -hmm. see a therapist. Friends are always like, you're seeing a therapist? Is something wrong? I'm like, no, therapy is an inoculation. Mm -hmm. We head shit off at the past. Like, so big fights are avoided by having conversations and hearing each other out. You know, Crystal was my best friend for 14 years before we started dating. I finally 
got out of the friend Aww. zone. But but we had to relearn <laughs> each other, you know, in a totally different light. And I think putting the effort into really doing that has paid off. And I, 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 I was never really on that program. Wow. So to do that, like really paid off. And now it's, it's exciting. Frankly, it's just easier, you know? Yeah. I feel really lucky. Wow, you were friends for 14 years before you started I asked her out the first time I saw her. She was super interesting to me. We met in college. We met Mm. first week of freshman year. I mean, I asked her out like pretty much every year after that, and she would always set me up with a friend of hers. So I've dated most of her friends. And oh, good, been good. weddings of people <laughs> that I dated along the way, which are always fun and awkward. Mm-hmm. But eventually I gave up and tried to set her up with a friend of mine. And she's like, why haven't you and I ever dated? I'm like, are you fucking serious? <gasps> like, oh my we God. spent holidays together. We have traveled together. We've been exchanging presents for like over a decade. And like, okay, it's on. And it was on. So it was really fun. But yeah, wow. like I, when I called her dad up to ask old school, like if I could marry her, he reminded me what I was wearing the first time he met me freshman year of college. And so like, it was, it was amazing. We'd been in each other's lives that long. Our parents knew each other. That's really special. But that said, like, I just, I wasn't good at relationships. I had no concept of them really. So I had to learn how to be good at that. And it took a while. Um, But that is something I take a lot of pride in now. But I think that's at the foundation of having great kids. So I don't talk about this on many entrepreneurship and business podcasts, turns out. I'm so surprised. I can't imagine why. That's a wrap on part one of Chris Saka on non-technical. Part two will be out June 30th, 2021. But if you need to get more Chris Saka in your life before then, you can find him on Twitter at Saka. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at GayAlexisGay and on Twitter at NonTechnicalPod. And hey, while I have you here, I have a review to read. This one comes from Wansel. Future SPAC target, five stars. Love the show and just wanted to hear you use SPAC in a sentence, song, or pun. Like ACDC's back in SPAC or I've got a SPAC ache. Fun this woman, people. Wansel, let me tell you this. I think that review was SPAC-tacular. And if you want to hear me read your review on the next episode, go ahead and hop on over to iTunes, leave me a review with a little corpse speak, a little tech lingo, and you might hear it on the pod. Talk to you soon. Bye.